Does kindness and compassion have a place in helping drug abusers, or do we need to just crack down on them? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Along with refugees desperate to start a new life in America, Donald Trump's solution to people desperate from drug addiction is to shoot to kill them. Today, we don't know what to do with either group of people who are so desperate, so the age-old approach has been to simply detain and punish people for crossing the border and with substance abuse issues. But as our guests today, who have some personal knowledge of the addiction issue, write, punishing people for substance abuse worsens the pain and isolation that makes drugs so appealing. You guys suggest that rather than punishment in, in our world today, they will, as this will undoubtedly sound crazy, what if we treated people who use drugs as complete and full human beings like everyone else? In an essay on Tom Dispatch, Sean Fogler and Mattia Kramer write that, uh, that uh, the, the lived experience to educate and inform reduced stigma uh, has improved public health policy for mental health and substance use uh, disorders. It works. Our guests are Sean Fogler and um, Mattia Kramer. Sean is active in the recovery community and co-facilitates a weekly physician peer support group with the Live Well Foundation. In addition to his work as a public health consultant, Sean volunteers as peer support specialist for Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, and serves on the board of the Bridgeway School, Philadelphia's first recovery high school. Mattia Kramer is a writer who covers drug policy. She's been published in The Nation and The Washington Post and has appeared on MSNBC. The title of the article on Tom Dispatch is, When in Doubt, Strip Search and Restrain the Unwell, Helping, in quotes, People by Shaming Them and Canceling Their Civil Rights. The worry is that the U.S. has slipped quietly toward an assault on civil liberties as an answer to plummeting mental health. As Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. As with so much of the military, just because they're familiar, rigid old policies and practices are not necessarily the best for solving difficult challenges. Well, thank you for being with us, Mattia and Deshaun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, I bet nearly everyone whether they know it or not, knows people who have addiction issues, whether they are quietly in AA or merely suffering in isolation. You have family or friends who are not pleased with their dependence on alcohol, prescription, or other drugs. As Purdue Pharma and so many other drug manufacturers and distributors know, the appetite for pain-killing substances is monstrous, and it is exceptionally profitable. Why? Because there's a demand there. And now the mobile, that mobile gaming or online gambling is legal and pervasive, the TV ads strike many as addiction enablers. And then when the targeted attraction works and people do become addicted, once again, it becomes the age-old policy which fails to address and solve the mental health issues that lead to addiction. As our first guest, uh, Dr. Fogler says, from coast to coast, State lawmakers of both parties are reaching for coercive treatment and involuntary commitment to address the spiraling substance use and overdose crises. What does that approach actually achieve? Either one of you. Yeah, thanks so much, Bert, and thanks for having us on to discuss this this really important issue. Um, 
You know, in terms of involuntary commitment, I think for the most part, the intent from, you know, legislators and criminal justice stakeholders is is a good one. I think they're trying to help people. They want people to improve their health and well-being. Um, but, you know, grabbing people off the street that are at different kind of stages of readiness um, you know, the research has pretty much shown that it's ineffective and sometimes very dangerous. Mm. Um, and these kind of strategies also, and I know we'll talk about this more, but drive this kind of isolation and disconnection um, that people feel because the reality is, is, is drug use and addiction isn't really about drugs. You know, it's about a whole host of underlying things that are driving the behavior and, you know, coercive treatment can actually lead to, you know, increased harms, um, you know, whether it's mental health issues or, or more drug use or even public safety issues. Um, and it, it really can lead to the opposite of what it's intended to achieve. Sure. Um, and so it's, you know, potentially very dangerous, and especially in the midst of, you know, the current you know, the current historic public health crisis uh, of, of, you know, drug use and overdose and mental health issues in this country. Um, I think it's a dangerous strategy and it kind of, it, it really takes us back historically um, to how we address these issues um, many, many years ago when we didn't really have solutions and we figure, you know, we just need to lock them up. Um, so, you know, I, I, th I think it's, even though it's well-intentioned, it's a strategy that can lead to a lot more harm. It does seem to be the case. It's it's not working just because it's, it's had you been used before at failures. Uh, it, it's not working, and yet it's familiar, so people do that. And people do what's familiar. Uh, Lord knows uh, people who have substance use issues do what's familiar. And the the 21st century especially post-COVID, has achieved one thing for sure. People can work and live in isolation. You say loneliness has become a public health crisis, which drives widespread substance abuse. Tell us more about that, please. Thanks, Bert. Um, this is such an important question, and I think that a way to understand it is to think about human behavior on a continuum, which is that many of us are experiencing difficult feelings, including overwhelming loneliness and isolation in our modern world. And virtually everyone reaches for a medicine of some variety to handle those difficult feeling, feelings. And for some people, that's um, working nonstop. Uh, for some people, mm. that's devices. For some people, that's alcohol. For some people, it's prescription medications that feel like a lifesaver and can absolutely be a lifesaver. Um, and for some people, it's illicit substances. And so I think understanding that continuum of behavior helps people who maybe don't identify as a person who uses drugs or uh, as a person who has an addiction to understand people who are in the throes of an acute substance use disorder, that we're all somewhere on that continuum right. and doing any number of things to address that, that difficult sense of loneliness or pain. Yes, it does seem to be worse. And the modern affliction, uh, affliction of loneliness and isolation, how is that affected when people who are lonely and isolated, when they're busted for drugs and face punishment? 
Sean, you go ahead on this one. Sure. Um, you know, punishment, shame, um, around drug use and addiction, um, at least, you know, from my kind of viewpoint actually pours gasoline on the fire Mm. and really fuels, fuels the harms. Um, and you know, it, it really, and I, you know, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but, you know, SAMHSA has these kind of overarching goals of health, home, purpose, and community as like foundational elements of recovery. Um, and criminalization um, actually shatters all of that, right? It disconnects people. Mm-hmm. It exacerbates harm, um, trauma, <clears throat> mental health issues. Um, and that, you know, that really dr- is driving this crisis in a, in a big, big way. And it's something there are definitely groups that are talking about it, but there's many, you know, ma- many of our strategies that are effective um, are pushing up against, you know, this, this idea of criminalization that, that these, these people quote unquote these are people. bad people, that right. they're dangerous, right. that we need to rid them from our community. Right. And if you really look deep, if you really look deeply at society, I mean, drug use has been part of our culture for, you know, the longest time, right? People use substances all over the planet. Absolutely. Um, but certain groups are, are, you know, have been really targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, and our drug policy has really historically has, has been aimed at, at, at trying to control these groups and oppress these groups. And now it's spilled over into anyone, right. That has a substance use issue. Um, and that's, that's driving this crisis. I mean, if you think about all the efforts and the funding that are going in to address this crisis and the good work that so many are doing, and the fact that overdose rates continue to go higher and higher, mm-hmm. drug use goes up and up and up, mental health issues up and up and up. And, um, you know, people are asking why, but but we really kind of do. And I, I think criminalization is at the top of the list because, you know, it uh, doesn't just drive drug use and addiction and overdose, but it also fuels stigma um, and the negative perceptions and mm-hmm. attitudes and beliefs about about this this population which which this population is all of us because <laughs> all of us use drugs in some way shape or form maybe oh, it's yes. caffeine maybe it's something to sleep at night i mean if we're really being honest and and every demographic right so um there's a whole host of issues that criminalization and punishment and shame um you know there's a whole, whole host of things that that it really drives that are getting in the way of us making progress and addressing these issues I had a fr- I have a friend who who used to say in many occasions when you're in a hole stop digging, and it does seem like <laughs> right yes it does seem, seem like that the approach that we have so far isolating people you know cutting them off from support when they most need support is stupid <laughs> it is it's just stupid and it doesn't work it's it it only uh, exacerbates the problem and and, and we have the data and we have the data. This is not a surprise. If you look at the criminal justice system, I mean, two thirds of the people you know, that are incarcerated have a drug related issue. You know, if the Bureau of Justice Assistance, I think the latest statistics are if you something like two thirds of people incarcerated have a drug or alcohol issue. Mm. And and if you look at 
if drugs or alcohol were involved at the time that the crime was committed, it's something like 80 plus percent. So our jails, our probation and parole systems are filled with the most highly traumatized you know, people with mental health issues, people with substance related issues that need you know, support and human connection um, and resources poured into them. Um, and we do the total opposite, right? We do everything, you know, to really keep this population down and then saddle them with a criminal record that, that lives on in perpetuity in terms of collateral consequences. And that doesn't help with recovery. Certainly. It, it, we've seen how much it makes things worse. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guests are Sean Fogler and Mattia Kramer, who uh, wrote an article for uh, the good magazine, online magazine, Tom Dispatch. The title of the article is When in Doubt, Strip Search and Restrain the Unwell, Helping People by Shaming Them, Canceling Their Civil Rights. And one thing we know about people uh, behind bars uh as you pointed out, with the, the statistics about the people with uh, substance abuse issues, the huge majority, and they also, and you talk about civil rights, canceling civil rights, they tend to be of one particular skin color, it seems to me. And I think there's, uh, you know, I know that uh, people like uh, uh, the former, or the, I guess he's still governor of Florida, DeSantis talks, uh, you know, is uh, blaming black people for, uh, you know, just saying that they have their choices, but the there is no, he says there is no systemic racism. Well, there is systemic racism. I'm sorry. But that's that's part of it. And, you know, the, the uh, cancelization of uh, uh, civil rights seems to be part of the issue. And, I think that's such a good point, Bert. And I just want to add to that, that sure, the way that we talk about substances is itself um, racialized. So um, I'm a white person. I use recreational cannabis and other kinds of recreational substances. I suffer virtually no social harms because of that. Right. Uh, I enjoy any, any number of privileges, including and especially my skin color. We tend to uh, most heavily stigmatize and criminalize brown and black folks who yes. are using substances that are overwhelmingly seen as um, the bad drugs. Uh, and, and we do that without acknowledging that as human beings, virtually all of us are reaching for some drug or yes. another, as Sean was saying, whether it's um, to sleep or whether it's uh, a glass of wine at night or so forth. And so acknowledging that all of us human beings are reaching for something is a way of reducing that stigma and the racism inherent in the conversation. And as you say, Mattia, there's a spectrum. There is a spectrum. Everybody, I mean, it's just part of human nature. As, as far as I know, you know, anthropological studies have shown that people like to get high in some fashion forever. You know, it's just part of being a human. Uh, I, I, it just is. And it's, it's so pervasive. I, I, I wonder about, you know, our culture in general. And there are these new ads, relatively new ads for tell your doctor to prescribe ask your doctor to prescribe x substance z substance you know just turning to drugs and, and turning to some sort of instant fix for things i i find that amazing really that that uh, and and that exacerbates it it just makes it like well if you have a problem just uh just look to a drug that's so pervasive in our society and i i wonder about uh people seeking to allay difficult feelings through many different 
instantaneous escapes, if not actual drugs. Uh, you know, it seems to me that it's so ingrained in our culture to buy more stuff. That'll make you feel better. How much of a problem in the context of addiction is that? I think that the buy more stuff point is such an interesting one. And here I want to reference Dr. Bruce Alexander, who wrote a book that Sean and I both favor called The Globalization of Addiction. And Alexander loves to point out that uh, the widespread shopping addiction, which many of us don't acknowledge as an addiction and Mm -hmm. endless consumerism, endlessly ordering more things. Essentially, what, what happens as a result of that is our oceans are filling with plastic stuff. And um, that that creates a harm um, that is uh, devastating and widespread. And even as we do that, we tend to say, oh, we're not the, quote, addicts, but folks who are using um, drugs or alcohol are the bad ones and they're right. the ones causing harm. Um, and I think that it's important to to acknowledge um, the harm that comes from other kinds of addictions, including consumerism. And that, that's such a critical point. I, I just you know, want to add, like, sure. Um, what Matias said, because, you know, th- the legal drugs, alcohol and cigarettes cause far more harm than the illicit drugs that, you know, that we're, we're criminalizing and process addictions like shopping and eating and sex have a whole host of societal, you know, health effects and economic effects and social effects on so many on so many levels. And we don't really talk about those, you know, and, and it is a little bit arbitrary where we draw these lines. Uh-huh. Um, and if you look at the Controlled Substance Act and you look at the drugs that are heavily criminalized um, and historically, too, many of these drugs today have, you know, huge like therapeutic effects. And, you know, we're seeing that with MDMA. We're seeing that with ketamine. Um, and and but we don't really talk about that. Right. And um, I just I think it's a really important, important point. It is an important point. And and as is written in the article, uh, social stigma is not static. It waxes and wanes uh, with the political currents of the moment. And before we get to that, uh, I, I do find it fascinating that LSD, which was quite popular when I was in college, uh, you know, was made illegal and oh, horrors. But now people, scientists, medical people are realizing, hey, it has its applicability. It can really help people. We kind of knew that at the time, I will say. Uh, but uh, the drugs, fr- drugs aren't really all good or all bad. You know, the, the reality, you know, cocaine is a fantastic local anesthetic. Yes. Um, you know, some of, some of the medi- you know, medications that you mentioned, that we mentioned, you know, ketamine, MDMA, LSD, um, there are some pretty powerful therapeutic effects when, yes. you know, used, used in a certain way. But um, we don't talk about that. You know, we think these things are bad and the people that touch them, you know, are bad people and they're dangerous and we need to rid society of them. Um, and that's not the reality. That's not the truth. And I, I, it seems to me judging people, you know, those people, the other people, it's so convenient. And we do that in so many ways with so many uh, situations. I mentioned right in the beginning about, uh, you know, refugees coming here for a better life. It's, you know, to get up and leave your home and to come here, things have got to be pretty bad. Uh, and and to, to treat them as the other 
uh, as bad people. It's you know it, it may be easy to do. And Sean, you referred to a, an act, a legal act that's underlying this whole thing that's been around for a while. I wonder if you could just uh, refresh my memory and the memory of our listeners as well as to what that act is and does. Yeah, in the 1970s, um, I guess with President Nixon and around the time when he declared, you know, drug drug abuse, quote unquote, public enemy number one, uh-huh. um, the D- the DEA was formed and, the, you know, their major role was to enforce the Controlled Substance Act, which classes, classifies drugs um, into categories um, that... Are, are supposed to be based on addictive potential and medical benefit. Um, the reality is, is if you look at the act, um, it really, for the most part, is not based on science. Mm. Um, and, and that's problematic in and of itself. And the other thing is, is that punishment is tied to those different schedules of drugs, like schedule one are drugs that have no medical benefit or purpose. And, um, you probably know, like marijuana is in that category, right? Yeah. Um, and there's and there's discussions right in the same category as um, heroin. Right. Um, no medical you know, purpose, and, right? Mm-hmm. Right, but but that's not even true. Even <laughs> heroin, which is diacetylmorphine, prescribed heroin um, is prescribed in some countries sure. for uh, people with opioid use disorder that have tried other ways to reduce or quit um and and it's very effective like in countries like switzerland you know um it's a very small subset of the population that are struggling but um you know this controlled substance act punishment is tied to them so it was tied to this so if you have a a schedule one or two drug um and you are you know found with that drug and you weren't supposed to have it you know the punishment can be very very severe and so it's, you know, it's this whole framework where we look at drugs um, and and punish people based on that framework. And the framework in and of itself is flawed. Um, and the DEA's, you know, one of their major missions is to enforce that. And so that that exacerbates so many harms on so many different levels. And it also drives stigma. Um, right. Because if you're caught with one of these substances, um, that are in one of these categories, you're considered, you know, public enemy number one. Um, you're dangerous, and we need to, you know, punish you. Um, and the reality is, let's face it, the vast majority of arrests um, for drug-related crimes are people that are using drugs, that are struggling with addiction. They're not, you know, Pablo Escobar or a, or a major trafficker, a very, very small percentage um, of, of, of arrests and prosecutions or for people that are actually, right. you know, doing major harm like that. Um, and it's very gray. Sometimes people are dealing to support their habit. Um, but it's, it's just, it's not black and white, you know, it's, it's all gray, um, but it's based on a flawed framework, a fl- which is very problematic. A flawed framework indeed. And I would think one of the aspects of it being flawed is that, you know, you can bust the dealer the uh, Pablo Escobars, etc. But if the demand is there, there's going to be a supply. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> it just it hasn't worked. It doesn't work. Not that I have my opinions. I do have my opinions, rather obviously. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting in the article in Tom Dispatch about uh, what Tom Engelhart had to say. He said 
Donald Trump is himself both a drug dealer and, dis and a distinctly addictive drug. People don't just support him. They're addicted to him. I thought that was an interesting observation. And once you go down his path, it's very hard to stop. What, about, what is it about his legions of true believers that exhibits addictive nature? This is such a good question. And I think that for this, we want to go back to the point about loneliness driving substance use. And so, um, again, in our modern world, so many of us, if not all of us, are experiencing some kind of loneliness or longing for the world to be different or um, there to be a greater sense of certainty or purpose, meaning, community. And one thing that Donald Trump is very effective at providing to his supporters is a sense of being a part of something meaningful, something powerful, something with momentum. And that can create that um, addictive quality um, just as with, whether, you know, whether um, with another substance, whether that's um, a drug or a drink or a TV show. No. Um, and uh, so Donald Trump is absolutely um, himself a sort of drug who um, who makes, I think, at um, at its core, makes people feel less lonely. And I think mm. understanding that about um, the the broad-based support that Donald Trump has is, is something really important in that we're all looking for a way to quell our loneliness. And for, for many people, Donald Trump is that thing. Fascinating. Fascinating. I don't know if that's been looked at uh, before, certainly not enough. And you guys mentioned the case of Nancy Campbell. Talk, tell us about the case of Nancy Campbell and its significance, please. I think that you're referring, Bert, to the rise of um, involuntary commitment um, and that um, the that more and more policymakers. So Nancy Campbell is a historian who studies how society responds to people who use drugs. And okay. right now what she's saying is that she's observing that involuntary commitment is um, becoming a more popular solution amongst mm. uh, po policymakers, um, and that this is not surprising based on our historical patterns of how we respond to people who use drugs. So right now, with the rise in overdose fat fatalities, which is um, which only continues to rise, mm. um, policymakers are just are grasping for some kind of solution and uh, involuntary commitment, which is the the grabbing of folks off the streets who are in the throes of a substance use disorder and um, institutionalizing them. That is unfortunately on the rise right now. And I wonder in in the law enforcement approach, which seems to be the uh, chosen mode, the the law enforcement approach to drug addiction and abuse, is there transparency regarding when and how coercive and heavy-handed techniques are used? How how many states currently authorize involuntary commitment? Is it a minority or how? I don't have any idea how big it is. It, it's actually. The majority of states, wow. um, I think the Health and Justice Action Lab reported 38 states, and they, they keep pretty good tabs on this. So it's a large majority of states. Um, in terms of law, the law enforcement approach, it and I've done a lot of law enforcement you know, education and training over the past six years now, uh -huh. um, it really varies. There are some jurisdictions that are really doing, you know, some impressive things and are working with the community, working with people's 
people that are um, that are using drugs, um, working with addiction experts and and people, drug policy experts to really kind of move the needle. And then some places it's you know it's like we're you know 100 years ago mm. um and so and in terms of transparency it's the same thing some are very transparent and open and are working collaboratively and others not so much um and i think that's one of the challenges too is that you know what works in one place doesn't necessarily work right. in in another um and the attitudes and perceptions and beliefs though we know generally um, especially some of the data we've collected across the, the U.S. population. We know generally what those attitudes are, but in some, some places they are significantly better. Um, and so I think it makes the problem even more complex and difficult to manage because there's a bit of an unknown, right, um, in terms of what will work, what, you know, what that population, you know, in that, in that region will be okay with. Um, but we have to start somewhere and I think we have to work collaboratively and, um, you know, and, and, and that means sitting at the table with criminal justice stakeholders. Uh-huh. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people in the recovery community and the harm reduction community that um, are not interested in sitting down. And, and I don't know how you move the needle forward without right, right. sitting down and having difficult conversations and trying to understand these different perspectives. But it is like kind of going back to what we were saying before, it's challenging to address these things when you have something like the Controlled Substance Act and you, and, and you have a lot of policies and practices that are rooted in racism and stigma and discrimination and these negative perceptions that are pushing up against, you know, the, these, these solutions or these, you know, collaborative approaches to address these issues. So that's a big part of it too. The policy policies need to change to make it possible for us yeah. to make progress. And it's, I, I can't help but think that, yeah, sitting down with, with the people who have a stake in the current system, you got to do that because people who have a stake in it, you know, the police departments, et cetera, law enforcement, they're not going to want to let it go. It's their territory now. It's part of their job. So you, ha- you have to bring them in. Well, you don't have to, but I think it's a better idea to do that. Go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And just speaking from somebody with lived experience, somebody who's been criminalized, mm-hmm. um, it's very difficult. Like it's, it can be very, very difficult to sit, you know, and listen and try and understand that perspective. But I think it's the only path forward. And, you know, as much harm as I think the criminal justice system has done and continues to do around drugs and drug use, there are some pretty amazing people trying to change it mm-hmm. um, from the inside and the outside. Um, and I think it's, you know, finding those people and like working together to really kind of move the needle forward, but it's not easy. Yeah, this is not an easy subject for those who may have just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. Our guests today are Sean Fogler and Mattia Kramer, who've written an article titled when in doubt strip search and restrain the unwell, helping people by shaming them and canceling their civil rights. And the idea of helping people, I mean, it's its one of those things where judgment is often involved, helping those people, those other people, you know. And uh, somebody has, has written uh, that it's more 
of a uh, of a club than a band-aid it's not even helping at all it's just like an old-fashioned club and uh, I, I do think it's it's interesting how a measure of lack of effectiveness is that nearly according to your article I believe it is nearly every state that has the highest overdose rates also have involuntary commitment laws in place it sounds a little bit ironic no I mean it's ex- extremely ironic um... And obviously, a single policy or a single solution right. is not necessarily, you know, the cause, or, or we can't necessarily say, well, that has no effect. But um, it is ironic and interesting. The other thing is, I wanted to mention there was a Please. study that came out um, just a few days ago, looking at um, states with civil involuntary commitment laws. Um, and overdose death rates. And what they found was the states that had these laws, so those 38 states, um, had opioid overdose death rates that increased at a faster rate during the COVID-19 pandemic than states without these laws. So, you know, bit by bit, we're gathering evidence that these laws, um, you know, not only do they, you know, drive substance use and drug use and addiction, but they're they're driving overdose death rates and, and may actually... Mm not just not be working, but may actually be exacerbating harm. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because in Pennsylvania, they introduced a bill that hasn't passed yet. Um, And we mentioned it in the article that post-overdose, we would be able to, um, you know, involuntarily commit somebody. And um, Mm. and it's, yeah, and it's, um, I mean, you know, on the surface, I think the legislators that introduce it, um, their intention is to get people help, but right. they don't really understand the nature of what addiction is, what the disease is. The fact that somebody uses a drug and overdoses doesn't necessarily mean they're addicted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then, where do you send? And where do you send this group of people? Like currently, and and Mattia and I have discussed this at length, and we know that people that want treatment, drug and alcohol treatment, there are not enough beds. Right. And there are not enough beds for certain unique, you know, populations like pregnant women or youth. Um, they're not nearly enough beds. So where are we going to take people that we involuntarily commit, commit? Right. Are we taking them to jail and locking them up? Are we um, going to turn our prisons into mental health facilities, which they already are? Um, there's nowhere. There's no way to go. And then some of these laws. um if you look at the language, you know, it's 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. Mm. And like as somebody, you know, myself in recovery um, and anybody else will tell you the real work starts when you leave treatment. If you go to treatment um, and you come back into the world like you, you need, you know, a robust, supportive um, infrastructure to support your recovery. And that can mean so many different things, whether it's like housing or getting a job or, or, you know, you have criminal legal issues um, or immigration issues. I mean, there's just a whole host of things that need to exist. And we don't have that framework now. I mean, pe- people are working on it and building it, but that framework doesn't even exist. So where are we going to take, you know, these people that need help, that really need our support? We're not even in a position to support them the way they need to be supported. And what kind of harm could that cause? 
And I just want to add to that, there was recently an opinion column in the Wall Street Journal in favor of involuntary commitment. And oh what, it sa- what, what it cites as evidence for the effectiveness of, of mandatory treatment is a study from the mid-20th century um, following people who were, who were coerced into treatment that was an 18 months, so a year and a half long treatment program that included education and retraining and ongoing support. And so as Sean is saying, that's a standard of care that doesn't even exist today. We do not have that resource. And so um, there's this sort of hypothetical argument put forward in the Wall Street Journal that this can work, forced treatment can work. And it's like, well, that kind of treatment, we don't we don't have access to that. Folks do not have access to that model that, you, that you're recommending. And so um, when the rubber hits the road, um, the kind of treatment that pe- people are being forced into is not effective. And as, as Sean's saying, we don't have the supports that folks actually need. And I like the question that uh, uh, Sean asks about uh, what if, it may sound crazy, what if we treated people who use drugs as full and complete human beings like everyone else? Because, frankly, we are everyone else. I mean, it's just, you know... It's, it's part of human nature. And to, to do that, to, to hit so hard with a club like that, it just, and your article points out that the California legislature passed a bill that grants police, mental health care providers, and crisis teams the power to detain people with, quote, severe substance use disorder. What? Is there a clear and accurate definition of what is meant by severe? And what, how, what? <laughs> how did they come up with that? Yeah, I, I think... Well, the short answer is, I don't think it is always clear. Right. Um, and and that's a big part of the problem, because you can rope whoever you want in. Uh, maybe they're, uh, you know, and I, I didn't see this detail in there, and I would hope it would be, but, I mean, you know how legislation works. Um, the, you know, whether they're using the American Society of Addiction Medicine criteria or something from the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual um, for Psychiatry, to actually specifically define define a severe mm-hmm. substance use issue, because the reality is that is a small a smaller subset of people that use drugs and people with addictions. Um, the most severe, you know, cases are a small group. Um, my fear is like, and if you look historically, we will end up roping in, you know, a very large group of, of, of people oh, sure. into this and, and use it as another punitive measure. Um, and, and not necessarily because we want to punish, I mean, some may, but because we don't have the resources, the capacity, the training um, to address these issues. I mean, uh, you know, we don't have the workforce um, to manage these issues currently as it is. Um, and so it's a very slippery slope and then, you know, you know, people lose their civil rights, Yeah. you know, and, and they're, and they're locked away and we try and make them disappear because they're a problem that we just, we can't solve. We don't have the resources or capacity to solve. And that's, um, that will take us to a very dark place. I mean, I, I feel yeah. like we're already going there. Hmm. And people who, you know, feel like they're beating themselves up, you know, having society beat them up even more, not, not a good well, idea. Go ahead. Right. right. No, you're, you're 100% right, because, you know, if you look at stigma, there's a whole bunch of you know, different types of stigma, but there's public stigma, you know, from society, 
um, and you know perceived stigma and structural stigma, but that self stigma like that you're talking about, um, the, the criminalization, the punishment, the civil, the coercive treatment, um, that really drives you know that that negative view of self um, and where people feel intense shame um, that that is very toxic, uh, makes them feel unworthy. Uh, makes them feel that they are not deserving of of love and care. Right. Um, and so, the, you know, the, it drives isolation and people don't reach out to help. Like, if you feel that you are broken, fatally flawed, that you're not worthy as a human being, right. um, you are going to isolate and disconnect. And that's where people die, right? They die alone, isolated. Yeah. Um, intensely lonely, even when they may have friends and families um, and people around them that say they love them and care about them, but they feel this deep sense of loneliness and isolation. And I mean, you can, you know, just look in the media, the endless numbers of people um, that have lost their lives to, to this disease, you know, or to suicide or, you know, other mental health issues. Um, that's a big, big part of it. And a lot of our strategies are exacerbating sure. these, these feelings. Speaking of exacerbating, legislators, I think, generally have the best of intentions. They want to help. Again, it's those people oftentimes. And there's a lot of work that has to be done to educate legislators, I think. But one approach that's been tried many, many times is abstinence-based treatment. How well does that work? Tell us why there is an elevated risk of mortality following abstinence-based treatment. This is very easy to understand. Um, after a period of abstinence, the body's tolerance for a given drug goes down. And so if folks are in um, abstinence-based treatment and, or, and are forced into abstinence-based treatment um, and return to use, to substance use, after that treatment... Um, there's a greater risk of mortality from what was previously an ordinary right. sized dose of a given drug. So um, in this case, um, that treatment, mandatory treatment can be not only a civil rights violation, but the potential for capital punishment for, for a fatal overdose following that treatment period. God. So horrible and so unnecessary, I think. I, I would think a large portion of people with substance abuse problems really very definitely want help, very sincerely. Is there any place in the country where there is sufficient voluntary treatment? Not that I know of. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, there may be some locales, but generally speaking, no. Um, they're really... There really isn't. And part of it relates to the last question where abstinence is the gold standard and the only standard. Mm. And it's interesting. And we mentioned this in the article that even institutions like the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, and Nora Volko, who's their director, is openly speaking and have you know put this into their latest strategic plan where using less of a substance or switching to a less risky substance is still a good, you know, is, is a path to, to recovery, is, is uh -huh. um, a path to improved health and well-being, and, is a, and there's been some research recently on this, and is a valid and important metric 
um, to look at as progress, right? Abstinence is not the only way. And historically, it has been. And in the 30s, okay, you go back to the bar, right? Um, and you drink some more today, you go out and, you know, you inject fentanyl or methamphetamine or one of these nitazines and you overdose and you die. So we have to, I think one of the, the shifts, the important shifts and movements is for a more, um, inclusive definition of, of what recovery is and more acceptance of many, many paths, because the reality is, and, and you might know this, I know this very well, it's not a straight line from A to B, like when it comes to, you know, drug use and addiction, and um, it is, you know, very like circuitous, you know, um, <laughs> very windy road that has lots of ups and downs. Um, and it takes a long time, right? Like, you know, your comment earlier about yourself and like me, you know, coming up on nine years in recovery, I feel like I'm just getting started. And uh -huh. sometimes I feel like I'm back at <clears throat> day one, like um, in terms of how I feel. And we, I think like a lot of our strategy historically has not factored that in. It's like, stop using drugs, stop doing bad stuff. Just and everything no. is better. Right. Just right. Just say <laughs> no. And everything gets better. Right. And man, like, yeah, for some people, you know, but but generally, it's just not that simple, right? And it's right. not that easy. Right. Well, as one of my favorite quotes from H.L. Mencken was, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution. And it's wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> right. I think that this is the essence of what we're saying here. It's that um, for everybody, it looks different for every person. And what Sean and I come back to again and again is just to bring compassion and um, kindness to whatever anybody's pathway looks like. Everybody, we're, we're all trying our best and um, want to be healthy, want to connect with other yes. other human beings, and want to be supported by friends and family and community. Everybody is is searching for that, and so by being a good friend or just bringing kindness and non judgment yes. to other people's path, that is perhaps the greatest thing we can do. Works for a lot of different situations, no question about it. Especially people who feel isolated and cut off and think badly of themselves, mm -hmm. as people often do. And you point out that the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which is a branch of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, has identified four dimensions critical to recovery. What are they? And is, is that something significant? It's very significant. And I, I did mention them earlier, you know, health, home, purpose, and community. Uh. Um, and if we... I mean, I always think to myself, if we if we keep that at the front of our minds with any solution, you know, um, to, to these issues, we're going to end up in a pretty good place. Right. I mean, improvements in health, right. Physical, mental health, home, right. Having a, a stable you know, place to live and connected to your family um, with that love and support, like like what you was talking about, um, having a purpose, right? Um, something yeah. that you're passionate about, um, yeah. you know, gainful employment, being able to, to support your family um, and community, like being seen as a full human being, being seen mm -hmm. as a full community member, mm -hmm. being, you know, being engaged with your community, 
um, respected, you know, seen as worthy. Like these, I mean, some of this stuff may sound wishy-washy to people, but this is like, I think it's like the essence of being human. Um, it's what we all are seeking, like love, connection, sure. to be valued. I mean, who doesn't want those things, right? And a lot of our strategies when it comes to mental health and especially you know drug-related issues um, really like shatter all of that um, and make that stuff really, really hard, if not impossible. Um, and it, and it doesn't like when we talk about criminalization, it, it doesn't ever end. Mm. So like how, how, you know, mm -hmm. how is somebody supposed to, and, and, you know, we call it recovery capital, right? Mm. These, these things, um, how do you acquire the recovery capital where, you know, it's, it's, you know, in your, in the ind individual's mind, it is um, more attractive to either not use drugs or use drugs in a, in a safer, uh -huh. you know, healthier way Right. and go to work, take care of your kids, like enjoy, you know, your home, like travel with your family, do things in the community. Like, like, like it, that has got to be, there's got to be hope. There's got to be hope. And I think in the current framework, People feel very hopeless and they feel alone and they feel isolated. And, and that's why people are dying. Mm, and it encourages them to take uh, more, you know, abusive situations for, for themselves. And I think it's important, you say, healing from the pain that underlies substance abuse disorder can look a lot like healing from any other health challenge. And I think that's right. And you've gotten to that, uh, to that point very clearly. I have to ask about what approaches might work? What about Portugal? What do we know about Portugal? Is it working there? And if we want to help people, legitimately help people, respect people, respect their civil rights, what approaches might work to, I mean, to help enable the growth of, of community of feeling connected and the things that we know that anybody who needs healing needs? Yeah, I think places like Portugal, places like Switzerland uh -huh. are on the right path. I don't think there is any perfect framework. Sure. Um, I think moving away from criminalization to a public health approach uh, makes a lot of sense. I think the best metric is asking, asking people with lived experience, asking people in recovery, asking people that are using drugs. How, how do they feel? Do they feel like a whole person? Do they feel right. part of their family, community? Um, and I think in in some of these other countries that that is happening. Um, do I think America is ready for that? Mm. Um, probably <laughs> not. Um, I like I wish they were. I do feel like we are moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. It feels, you know, feels like a glacial pace to me, but. Yes. Um, I was talking to a drug policy expert last night and he was saying, which I think is very true. He's like, you have to zoom out and see where we've come from because things were really, really bad in terms of like drug policy. Um, and we have come a long way now. We were so far down. We have a long way to go, but he's like, we are making progress and there is a shift. And if you look at even the office of national drug control policy in this country, you know, they're talking about harm reduction, they're uh -huh. shifting more funding to treatment and prevention and, 
Um, is it perfect? No, but there is a shift. There is a realization that criminalization and punishment and shame is very ineffective and just say no doesn't work. But we still, that is, you know, that's kind of how, I mean, those thoughts and beliefs and perceptions are very ingrained in our psyches and it's, it's taken a long time to get here. And I think it's going to take a long time for us to unravel that and get to a much better place. But I, I do feel there's progress, you know, even, even with some of the latest, like, you know, policies and legislation, you know, we've seen kind of a backlash um, towards drugs and drug use. Um, yeah. Well, as I, I don't remember the exact quote, I really should, from Martin Luther King about the arc of history bends toward justice. Very slowly, very, very slowly, I must have. Very. Uh, glacial, as you said, Sean. All right, supposing let's make you guys in charge of America's drug policy. What would it look like? The first thing that I would say, Bert, is the moving of funding dollars from punitive strategies which are not effective and not helpful for folks who are experiencing a substance use disorder toward evidence-based strategies. So that includes peer support, that includes genuine mental health treatment, um, and it includes housing, affordable housing. Uh-huh. Our, our housing crisis is a huge issue that drives yes. um, mental mental illness and um, and substance use. So um, the first pillar that I would throw out is moving those funding dollars from punitive strategies toward the things that we know work. And that's um, helping one another. So peer support models, people with lived experience, helping one another, um, making housing affordable and available and uh, genuine mental health care. And Sean, any? Yeah, I would. Go ahead. Yeah, I would second all of that. Um, I always, you know, every time I think about this, like, you know, had people ask me, what's the one thing you would do? I think addressing the criminalization is really, really critical. Um, you know, and I think we've touched on it, you yeah. know, many times during this conversation. But and it's not just the harms that criminalization delivers, but but well, I guess it is another harm. Criminalization drives the negative attitudes and perceptions and beliefs we have about drugs and drug use and the people that use drugs. Um, and so I think it's critical to address that and to address stigma, we have to address criminalization. And obviously the shift of funding, you know, from a you know law enforcement or criminal, mm-hmm. you know, criminal justice approach to a public health approach is really the solution. And I also think you know, many of our systems are trying to address these issues, you know, the criminal legal system or healthcare systems. But I think we need to really invest in community solutions mm-hmm. because the reality is, is people who use drugs, people, you know, that have substance use issues, they don't trust these systems. They have a long history of being shamed and discriminated against and um, really treated badly. And they don't feel safe. And, um, and so I think we need to, you know, double down on, you know, robust frameworks, you know, in the communities that can give people the things they need, make them feel safe, build trust, um, and to help them, you know, improve their health and well-being, whatever that that is, whether it's, you know, an abstinence-based recovery, whether it's switching to a different substance, um, Whatever it is, whatever their path is, we have to meet them where they're at and support them um, and give them hope, you know, and make them feel valued like like a whole person because they are. 
Yes. They're complete human beings as they are. Yes. Um, though society frequently doesn't see them that way. Is there anything on the internet to which you can address people who want to do something about it, who are concerned about their own uh, pain leads, leading to uh, a discomfort from from uh, substance use? Uh, what is there something you can point to on the internet that people can check out? Any organizations? I mean, in in terms of getting like help with well, a substance use issue, or in terms, in terms of, of making like, getting legal involved change. And Making legal change, yeah, perhaps. And, well, I mean, there's some great organizations that do policy, like the Drug Policy Alliance oh, is yes. a great organization. The National, I think the har many harm reduction organizations, the National Harm Reduction Coalition is an excellent organization. Um, I would also say, like in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Network is doing some great work. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, almost every state has a harm reduction organization or drug policy related organization um, pushing the, you know, pushing things forward in terms of, you know, progressive policies. Um, and, and, you know, I think getting involved locally um, is important. Some syringe service programs, like I'm in Philadelphia mm -hmm. and Prevention Point Philadelphia is the largest syringe service program in the country that does all sorts of work around these issues. I mean, there's, there's so much. One of the things we're doing with our organization is uh, working, and this is actually a commitment we made to the Kennedy Forum, to build a coalition of physicians in training that are interested in addressing stigma towards mental health and substance use issues in healthcare settings, um, and really building a coalition to address those issues because, you know, they have a powerful voice and they're really... Um, energized to make change. So I think there's a lot of different, you know, organizations, um, individuals, and, and groups doing, you know, different work. Um, and we, you know, we could supply more offline. You know, create a little bit of a list where your listeners can can go to for more information. Well, if people want to do that, what? Uh, how could they get in touch with you? So uh, for me, uh, my email is Sean, S-E-A-N, at Elevist, E-L-E-V-Y-S-T dot com. Um, yeah. And um, I'm at M, the letter M as in Mattia, at MattiaKramer.com, M-A-T-T-E-A-K-R-A-M-E-R.com. And Bert, I would just add to that that one thing that everybody can do is resist the temptation to judge people yes. for what they perceive as problematic substance use. Everybody can do that. Everybody can notice the temptation to judge others and make a different choice and instead just extend kindness and understanding. And I think that if we all do that, you know, our legislators represent constituents who by and large are still um, in the old school way of thinking, mm. which is to judge and stigmatize folks who use substances. And we can become a constituency that no longer does that, that doesn't judge folks for their use and recognizes that we're all reaching for some kind of medicine to feel better. And I think that that can make a big difference. If our legislators knew their constituents were all for kindness and compassion, hey, it might make a difference after a little while. Sean Fogler and Mattia Kramer, thank you so much for being with us today and shedding a lot of light into this uh, very uh, misunderstood area of uh, our culture. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bert. Thank you.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.